Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. This episode is sponsored by Master Blaster Alternative Dispute Resolution Services, located in the heart of Bartertown. Two problems enter when mutually agreeable written settlement leaves. And welcome back. We are back to uh, Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. The man sitting across from me is Kirk Damon. And that's still Kirk, like the captain of the Enterprise? As always. So, uh, Kirk, it's uh, it's been a while. It has been a while. It's uh, kind of weird sitting in this recording studio again. It's uh, It feels a little foreign. Yeah, it does. Uh, it's, it's weird though. Like, I feel like we were just here, but then like once we sat down, I realized it's been six weeks, eight weeks since <laughs> so, we recorded six weeks, one? something along those lines since we recorded one of these. Yeah, and uh, and thank you to our, our sponsor, who we don't actually know who it is yet because we make up the sponsors after we record. <laughs> uh, but we are always grateful <laughs> for our, our fake sponsor and also our band. We had a, a question from uh, somebody just grabbed me that saw me and said, "Hey, listen to the podcast. Who does the music?" And we actually asked our our, uh, our sound engineer Dane right before we sat down to record. Uh, and it's uh, uh, basically we're going to make up a name for the band and I told Kirk on the way over I'm going to propose Lorem Ipsum and the Scriveners which I like is the name of the band because it basically means it's nothing yeah <laughs> no no offense to our to our, uh, our composer who did a, a wonderful job with our, our theme song this is so, our band playing the theme song exactly our, our exactly. You know, cantina band yeah the, the official LGG cantina band so anyway so the reason for the delay uh, so our, our concept when we started this was always to do uh, uh, an eight-episode sprint, so to speak, and then see where we were on downloads and analytics and then figure out a realistic going-forward release schedule. Although I think, Kirk, we, you and I were both pretty excited about the concept. We got good response from people when we kind of screened the ideas, and but those are all you know friends and family who, who care about us enough to lie to us if they think we're, we're, all, you know, we're crazy. Exactly. I think that's the thing is this was, you know, sort of we, we needed the rubber hit the road and see... Uh, if this was something that people actually were going to listen to, and apparently enough of you are actually listening to it, that we should keep making more episodes. So for those of you who are listening to it, who have subscribed to us, who are downloading these podcasts, who are listening to them online, wherever you're listening to them, thanks a lot. That's the reason we're going to keep doing these. Yeah, the, the response was, uh, frankly, better than I, I expected. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm too pessimistic, but uh, yeah, we, we got a, a good number of downloads, lots of good feedback. So uh, again, thank you all. The plan going forward, uh, the, the eight-episode sprint was sort of a one-time thing, and it's it's not sustainable in view of our, our personal and professional obligations. So we're going to be aiming for a one-episode release every two weeks. So bi-weekly – wait, is that – is bi-weekly yeah. twice a week or once every other week? <laughs> I don't week? know. It seems like I, you I never talk know. to us twice. It, it will be every other week. Every other week. Uh, and, and probably usually on Mondays, although we're going to have some holiday Mondays coming up that we have to shake that up a little bit. Yep. So, to give you a sense of where we're going, today's topic is customization and modding. On 11.13, we're going to cover IP and fan art. And then one of the episodes I'm really looking forward to is November 27th, Internet Urban Legends. Uh, There's really two sides to that we're going to look at. One is, who owns IP in these... Like made up, you know, com- <laughs> communally developed, like Slender Man. Like, like where do yep. these things come from? Who owns IP to it, if there is any? And then also we're going to try to dispel as many internet IP or other law myths as we can. Uh, and then after that, on December 11th, um, we are hoping by then all of the Star Wars Episode Eight trailers are out. That's going to be a, a fun one. We're going to do a, a very law-light, uh, geek-heavy <laughs> Star Wars Episode Eight prediction episode. Silly predictions, serious predictions. Uh, so if you have 
have any predictions you'd like us to discuss or consider, please send those in. I, and I have we'll, my initial prediction for Star Wars. There will not be a lawsuit in Star Wars. Yeah, probably not. Probably <laughs> not. Are there any lawyers in Star Wars? I don't think I've ever I don't seen. I think there's ever been officially a lawyer in Star Wars. There are in Star Trek, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But, we had one of them sponsored our episode. Yep. Uh, one, an episode a while ago. Okay, and then for the week of Christmas break, we have something absolutely amazing planned. You will not want to miss. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil it, but the, the hint is, how do you scrub something off the internet that's embarrassing and you hope nobody ever sees? So... <laughs> Those of you who are in the know will, will understand what we're talking about. We'll definitely about get there. where this is going associated with it being the Christmas episode. Yes, indeed. Uh, and then after that, we're going to do Mailbag Day uh, in January. So we're going to – we've got some uh, questions in. But we're going to save those and kind of uh, go through them all machine gun style uh, in January. And after that, kind of back to regular episodes. Uh, we're going to do one on spacecraft licensing in 2018, file sharing, BitTorrent, uh, robot liability, and the episode that I know for a fact many of you are very excited for – the Mickey Mouse episode, character copyright. <laughs> yeah, and that may be more than one episode. That really time could get into be. it. I mean, we all know that's a topic you guys are very interested in. Um, it's a topic that I think we are, you know, uh, professionally very interested in as well. Character copyright is sort of an extremely interesting area of copyright law generally. Um, we both published, you know, some material in conjunction with it. I have a paper out there specifically on the, the concept of whether or not setting is a character. Um, and so, you know, I think it's an episode that, that in some sense the listeners are looking forward to, we're also looking forward yeah. to just because it's such an interesting area of IP law. And the reason we haven't done it yet is I, I think we're kind of thinking to, to really get your arms around how this works and to kind of make sense of it in the context of, of you know, fan fiction and fan art and these other things. You need a little bit of a groundwork. We were hoping we kind of uh, sprinkle enough law through the first couple of episodes to, to establish that groundwork. So hopefully if you've been listening, by the time we get to that, it'll all make sense. Yeah, because it is an area of law that requires, you know, you have to understand a lot of basic copyright concepts because this is in some sense an extension of them. And it, you need to understand the basic core to understand where these pieces come from. Otherwise, in many respects, it starts to sound very foreign and very alien. Yeah, you get lost um, easily. Yeah, you get lost easily. And so that's part of the idea of giving the background. And actually, today's episode is going to get us a little bit into some of these concepts um, as we're talking about as we're talking about modding. Yeah, so uh, modding and customization. If you are a geek of any sort, you have done this at some point. Um, this happens a lot with with software, I think, and. I mean, Kirk's a Warhammer guy, so you're going to be able to speak, speak a lot to this. Uh, I never got a ton into the miniatures, but if you've ever played a role-playing game or anything on the tabletop, you have at some point played a game and thought, you know what, this could be just a little bit better or a little bit cooler or look a little more awesome, and you have, admit it, uh, gone out and either made your own miniatures. I know a friend of mine, this guy Todd, I used to hang out with in college. Todd, if you're listening, sorry for outing you. Todd, at one point, <laughs> sent me all these instructions for how to make your own plaster molds and <laughs> make your own <laughs> custom parts for these games. So I know you guys do this stuff. Um, it, it raises all kinds of interesting IP questions, and it's not, it's not just miniatures. It, it, it can be as simple as making new pieces or new uh, rules that are compatible with games or other products that are, are made by somebody else. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, and I'll just talk about my own sort of first experience in conjunction with this. I mean, I'd say from my first modding experience, I was a very, very active Shadowrun player mm. uh, back in the first edition of Shadowrun, uh, for those of you who may remember it. Um, I did play the second edition a little bit. But back in the first edition, I, I created an entire secret organization. I had three source books that I'd written up that were basically entirely for them. And there were two campaigns, one which introduced them and one which kind of ended up you needed them to complete um, in the end. So it's one of those things where 
again, I think if you're on the, most things with geek culture, there's a desire in, in some respects to sort of add your own mark to it. And particularly because when we're talking about stuff like geek culture, we're talking about things you're doing with your friends. Mm-hmm. This is not something you're necessarily entirely on your own in conjunction with, you know, role-playing games. You're going to play with friends, get a lot of gaming. You're going to be playing with friends, particularly in modern age, even video gaming now is done with friends or even random people um, who you may meet online and then later become friends. There may be a, a, a characterizing feature of what makes something geek culture is the amount of your your personality you imprint on it. You know, like, like I'm, I'm really into sports and I follow uh, the Hawkeyes, my alma mater, but the, the amount of my personality that goes into that is, is effectively nothing other than me, you know, shouting at my TV for three hours every Saturday. <laughs> uh, but, but beyond that, like I follow the team, I talk to people, but I don't really contribute anything to the culture of, of my alma mater as a fan, uh, you know, other than to the extent I'm at games and people see me, I guess. But I was a Dungeons and Dragons player in high school and you write your own scenarios, you develop your own characters and then you play them. And there's, there's an element of your personality that defines your experience with these properties. And I think that's something that's, I wouldn't say unique to geek culture, but certainly characteristic of it. Yeah, I think it's very an important part of geek culture. And I think it's also the idea of sort of geek culture a lot of times does arise to a fandom interaction level. You know, the, when you talk about the idea of like fans, and again, I think, you know, sports is a good example of where to go to. Sports fans, I mean, truly define the term fanatic. I mean, that's, you know, a fan is a shortening of fanatic. And, you know, you get guys who, you know, go out, you know, wearing no shirts and nothing but body paint when it's, you know, sub-freezing outside <laughs> that are, you know, football fans. That, that you know, you're crazy for the team. But I think exactly that um, component of it that's different is they're not influencing the team necessarily in any direct way. I mean, one could argue that fantasy games are starting to yeah, do this in is, a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, it's, if we think about traditional sports fans, whereas in geek culture, there's almost always a desire to sort of impart your own personal take on these things um, and and share it with others. And to add on to it. Yeah, and to add on to it. And some of it, I think, is because a lot of, you know, very, very good, um, you know, geek culture things, a lot of sort of science fiction, a lot of things that, that come out, they, in some sense, encourage this by purposely leaving open mysteries. Absolutely. Um, I mean, as, as Ben mentioned, I'm a huge Warhammer guy, Warhammer 40K, technically. Fluff. Um, <laughs> and it's fluff backgrounds. How many people have wondered who the heck the two missing Primarchs are? Um, you know, I'm not sure that question will ever be answered. Um, and the thing is, like, you don't need the fluff to play the game, yeah. right? But if you've ever made an army for any kind of miniature game, you can't help but develop a backstory for it. Why yeah. did you choose these colors? Why do you have this particular arrangement? Like, I don't know about you, just from driving to work, I think about that kind of stuff now and then, and it just it just pops into your head. I think it's, it's probably no coincidence that those of us who are deep into geek culture tend to also be drama nerds to at least some degree. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's surprising. There is a bit of a performance aspect to it. I think that's, you know, comes from role-playing in some respects. Um, you know, and again, I mean, I game mastered for a number of years. I was, you know, active in collectible card games. Um, and then I sort of became a tabletop war gamer and I became very active in tabletop war gaming. And one of the big things for me in tabletop war gaming, I play my own custom Space Marine chapter, Warhammer 40K. I have a 50-page background, you know, document that I've written up for them. And my dad always said there's a fine line between a hobby and uh, and mental illness. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> well, and as Kirk alluded to a couple seconds ago, a lot of the people who own the properties that, that we use to do these things encourage us to do this. I mean, role-playing games by their nature require us to impart our personalities and to develop new IP uh, originally based on the rule sets they give us. And like Cards Against Humanity, for example, I think the set I got came with blank cards. You can add your own content to it. And it's licensed under Creative Commons, which implicitly means you can add onto it and then redistribute whatever you create. So there's a lot of leeway here. And when we say modding and customization, this could be anything from miniatures and models like we're talking about, or even think about 
something like uh, House Rules for Monopoly. If you've ever read the actual rules for Monopoly, <laughs> you don't get anything for landing on free parking. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've always played that way, actually. I don't Have play really? for anything on free parking. I probably played Monopoly for 15 years before I realized that was not actually a rule. See, however, we do it where it doesn't actually require the Monopoly to buy houses and hotels. Oh, okay. Well, that's like, yeah. There's like a quick play version you can do. That, that's what I'm talking about. Um, and then I used to play HeroScape. It's sort of a, a lightweight miniatures game that was pretty popular, I don't know, about 10 years ago. And there, uh, there was a, a big community developed of people who wanted to add new pieces to HeroScape based on other properties. So you could go online and buy a Star Wars hero, or there was a, the, the Xenomorph from Alien. There's one of those. <laughs> And you know those 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 pre- present double issues. One, are you offending any IP that belongs to whoever makes HeroScape? I forget who it was, Hasbro or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then two, if you're borrowing somebody else's IP, you've got two people whose IP you may have infringed. I think HeroScape eventually ended up under TSR, if I remember correctly. I remember. And they've taken a while to get there, but I liquidated my set a long time ago. <laughs> and then one of the things uh, that I I used to do is just add on to games. So when they when they they re-released crossbows and catapults, um, gosh, early two thousands ish. But the rule book was like incomprehensible, <laughs> nothing like the original. It made no sense. And uh, me and my my son Spencer, uh, I mean, he was a little kid at the time. We just made up our own rules and like imported a bunch of like class archetypes from Warcraft into it, and and it became an entirely different, almost RPG tabletop miniature kind of game. Yep. So there's so much you can do with all of this, but most of it doesn't really become a real issue, practically speaking, until you try to sell it to somebody else, and that's when you have people uh, who own these properties getting really interested in what you're doing and how you're doing it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things we need to talk about in conjunction with it is one thing to keep in mind, and I think a very important background in conjunction with all of this, is from a strict legal point of view, a very large percentage of modding is going to be some form of IP infringement. Oh, yeah. there's no question. Um, you know, when you talk about the idea of, you know, modding something, modifying something, you're getting into the copyright concepts of derivative work. And there is no question, the law is very clear, that the copyright law prohibits the creation of derivative works. 17 U.S.C. 106. Yep. Um, says right there. And so that's one of those things to keep in mind is, you know, we're talking about modding. In almost all cases, there is some form of technical infringement here. Now, there are defenses to that technical infringement. Implied most, license. Implied license. The most common which is what is also fair use or what's particularly referred to as transformative fair use. Um, we can do an entire episode on transformative fair use without any problem. We probably will. We probably will. Mm-hmm. Um, but transformative fair use, to put it very simply, is the question that basically you've you've incurred fair use because your use of the thing is so transformative from what it was originally intended to be. Really, you separated it from its original copyright. And it's a concept that gets used a lot, actually, in fine art. Interestingly enough, um, but it also obviously shows up in conjunction with you know uh, commercial artwork, and it's something where you potentially can bump in. To modding. What I think we want to talk about here, though, and particularly the concept of modding here, is where you're really adding on to something or you're really modifying something where you're not wholeheartedly changing it. You know, you're not taking, you know, uh, hero clicks, you know, as an example, and, and turning it into a card game. You know, it's mm-hmm. sort of a wholly different sort of component of it as to what it is. We're talking about things that really fit within the universe of the game, that really fit within the style of what it is. Stuff and like often that. require as a prerequisite for what you're offering, you have to have the underlying thing. Yeah, or it doesn't I think work, that's a right? key so, sort of component. So if yeah. I'm selling a custom piece for like HeroScape, it doesn't do you any good to have that unless you also have a small fortune invested in HeroScape, <laughs> or at least you have the rules and stuff yeah. like that. And, and actually, that creates, I think, our first interest interesting problem in modding, which is when we're talking about a lot of these things, oftentimes there's two components. There's a rules component in conjunction with the object you're talking about, or for sort of lack of a better term, something which is textual. 
and a lot of these other components, there's also a visual component of them, whether it's a miniature, whether it's a, a, a individual card and the depiction on a card, whether it's the appearance of a universe in a video game, something along those lines. There's oftentimes two pieces of this, one part of which is rules-based and very textual-based, and the other piece of which is very visual-based. And the IP, we, we went over IP and video games in the last episode. I think in a lot of ways, board games are even harder to protect and even weirder. Yeah, I mean, and I think the thing we get into that's weird about board games is there's really not a lot of difference between board games when you truly think so, about it. I mean, the, the main IP in a video game is going to be the source code. You don't have that in a board game. Yeah. The source code's your brain. Yeah, and that's, and especially with, as well when you get into video games, a lot of times there's a lot to do, a lot of IP associated around algorithms to choose things. Yeah, I software. mean, there's, there's large debates about matchmaking algorithms and like in multiplayer online games and stuff like that. How do you deal with this? These are very complex algorithms, you know, handling very complex topics. You don't have that in board games, you know. It's those four of you sitting around a board. Yeah, you roll a dice, you look at what it says, you move a piece. I yeah. mean, so let's let's talk about a, a board game everybody probably is familiar with Monopoly. What's what's the IP of Monopoly? So the game pieces, if you remember, there's the dog, the purse, the yep. shoe, the car. Those are arguably not entirely sense affair, but predominantly, yeah. I'd say, there's specific affair. sculptures, and so obviously the specific the particular this, expression, yeah, the particular Scotty dog, which is the piece I always played. Yep, same you here. know, is one of those things where that, you know you can't just make a casting of that. There's gonna be no question that's a copyright infringement. Yeah, and, and sense affair is, is a concept that the rudimentary or obligatory elements you have to have to express an idea aren't protectable. So although the particular Scotty dog in Monopoly is, is probably a copyrighted sculpture owned by the Parker Brothers, Parker Brothers, yeah. yeah. Um, you can make another Scotty dog that looks awfully similar, yeah. probably, and, and get away with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's that. Uh, the board layout is basically a continuous path made up of rectangles. Nothing is patentable or uh, uh, copyrightable there. And right, there's, so exactly, it's the same as Candyland or yeah. virtually any, you know, sorry, virtually any other game. And then what's what's the text? It's almost all names of actual streets in, I think, Atlantic City. Is that right? Um, somewhere in Yeah, exactly where it is. And forget it's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, those are names of actual places. You can't own a copyright in the, what the name of a place. You know, nobody has a mm-hmm. copyright to St. Louis. Um, and then you know the cards have some images. The board has some images on it, but it's all really basic stuff. Other than that, Kirk, what else is there? There's not much else to From it. a copyright point of view, yeah, there's not, you look at it and you sort of say, I mean, there's there's going to be some fairly strong copyrights and hotels, because of the specifics. Sends yeah. affair again? Um, yeah, house in a hotel, I mean, it's, you know, standard sort of frame house, money is money. I think a lot of the thing you're sort of going to get into, though, when you talk about the copyright, is the specific layout of the board. And also the, the overall assembly, of right? colors, you know. Yeah. Um, and then there's also specific elements of it. So like an example of, I think, where you could potentially see some IP is like the spinner to hold the, the property title cards. Yep. You know, those kind of things can definitely have it, but the question we're really getting into is, well, what if I want to modify Monopoly? I'm not playing with these things. And you've seen there's respects. a whole lot of other dash Opoly games. Some yep. are officially licensed and have the exact same board layout and functionally play yep. the same way. They're just aesthetic changes. I got one for Christmas a couple years ago called Iowa Opoly, which yep. is an unlicensed knockoff, but the gameplay is slightly different. They're not just, you know, uh, uh, cosmetic changes. The the board layout is is Similar at the high level, but there's minor differences. Enough that you can't just say it's a copy of Monopoly, which suggests that there is some copyright that exists in the overall assembly or collection of these otherwise yeah. mostly not copyrightable pieces. And I think one thing to keep in mind, what we're, we're also glossing over here a little bit is quick, is one thing to keep in mind, there is probably an extremely strong trademark in Monopoly. 
um, and then the name Monopoly and potentially even in Opelies and sort of things like that, trademark potentially in the appearance of the board, stuff along those lines. What we really want to talk about here is copyright because when we're talking about these things, there's trademark is all related to confusingly similar and sort of confusing aspects like that. So it's easier to, about, to deal with. Yeah, and we're talking about a change as well for a game going to an entirely new game. That's not so much the mod as it is the as a sort of entirely new thing. Um, a lot of times in the mod, you're actually modifying existing Monopoly. So you're not calling it a name. You're not making anything associated with the trademark. You're making, hey, I want to make a piece, and you know my piece is going to be a particularly new piece because I'm going to make a speedboat instead of the battleship. Let's dispose of the trademark issue briefly because that one's pretty easy to deal with. So trademark interests have to do with branding, and the standard for whether you've infringed a trademark is basically how likely is the way you're using a word going to confuse somebody as to who you are. The classic example, we Kirk and I talked about this the other day, there's a difference between making ice cream out of Snickers and selling it as Snickers ice cream as compared to ice cream made from Snickers. Yeah. In the first case, there's a reasonable argument that the commercial impression of what you said implies that the maker of Snickers made the ice cream, yeah. if it's Snickers ice cream. I think they do actually make Snickers ice they cream. They probably do. Yeah. Whereas ice cream made from Snickers is just describing what it is. And it's clear, it's, it's not necessarily abundantly clear, I would say, that it doesn't originate from Snickers, but there's a better argument that it's not going to confuse somebody, and you can clear that up. Yeah, and I think another thing to keep in mind with it is it also needs to be truthful. If you're saying you made ice cream out of Snickers, it better actually have Snickers yeah. in it. it better not That's have somebody's you know, problem, modified problem, yeah. you know, additional candy that just looks like Snickers. So, on the same token, if you are making custom parts or modification parts that are supposed to be used with something specific, like, I don't know, Kirk, what's an example of a vehicle that you would mod, like, in, in Warhammer? I mean, so, yeah, I mean, if I'm going to come in and I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to make, um, you know, Doors for a Rhino APC. Yeah, something along there's a big lines. difference between saying Rhino APC custom door, yeah. which sounds like it may come from Games Workshop versus or Forge World or Forge World, which versus my name is Kirk Damon and this is my custom door for use with yeah. the Rhino APC, or which happens to fit a Rhino happens APC. Fit, you know yeah. those kind of things in conjunction with it. And admittedly, there's you know the the issues in this get really really complicated. And interestingly enough, some of this has actually been litigated. Uh, for those of you who are aware, in conjunction with you know modification and modification parts for Hammer 40K, um, there was a major case that went around the Chapter House case. Chapter House Studios made a variety of add-on parts in conjunction with Warhammer 40K um, vehicles and for use with sort of, you know, Warhammer 40K vehicles. And they made everything from essentially shoulder pads um, with particular markets embossed on them as opposed to being blank. Vehicle doors. Yeah, vehicle doors. I mean, they made some custom, entirely custom vehicles, but they also made sets that would, like, convert things completely. So, for example, they had a set that would expand a Stormhawk gunship so it was longer. Yeah, and um, there... But confusion is not the only issue with trademark in particular. It's probably the simplest one to dispose of as far as protecting yourself as much as you can. You see people on Etsy do it all the time. And there's no, you know, people sell things made from Disney fabric on Etsy. I don't think anybody's really confused whether or not the person selling. You know, uh, grandma's quilts on Etsy is from Disney. Like, yeah. she's not. We all know that. There's also some issues in first sale there, and I think that's also yeah. worth pointing out. There's another defense in some of this stuff well, as well. We'll hit that in a second. Uh, but even if there's no confusion, there are other theories of trademark violation, the main ones being dilution and tarnishment. Dilution would be where you, correct me if I'm wrong, Kirk, basically, if you allow too much unchecked use of the mark, even if it's a normal and acceptable use, it can dilute the value of the actual mark. Yeah, and the idea is sort of 
of behind there is it's it, it, and I think the the real sort of key behind dilution is that you're diluting my rights in the mark by the way you're using it. It's not necessarily directly harming them by your one use, but it's sort of a contribution to diluting the marks. And it's a lot of these trademark terms like dilution, unfortunately, I think are decided specifically by courts. You know, it's something where they're going to look at it and they're going to say, here's the basic legal framework. Does this fit into it? Which makes it hard to say. Here's the particular criteria requirements of dilution. They're going to look at it and say, is this diluting? Another one is tarnishment, which is, I think, a little clearer that it implies that your use of the mark is associating it in some way with something that is controversial or unsavory. And that brings me to Internet Rule 34 or 43 or whatever it is. Uh, if it exists, there is porn of it. That's, <laughs> that's the internet joke about the remarkable variety of, of content that appeals to the prurient interest online. And at some point, somebody cracked a joke that if, if you put something on the internet, somebody somewhere will eventually make pornographic material out of it. Yep. And this actually uh, sort of happened with, um, oh, I forget if it was EverQuest or, or, or Warcraft, um, World of Warcraft. But a lot of, lot of players of those online RPGs will write their own fan fiction about their own characters that they play. Yep. None of it has anything to do with what goes on in-game. But there was one case where a player wrote some, um, I think, somewhat explicit material. I've never read it. I've just kind of heard about it uh, anecdotally. Uh, and her account was banned. That's a contract issue. But once the, once the account's gone and she has no contract with the supplier... What's to stop her from just publishing more and more material that takes place in this world? Well, and that's interesting enough. It's sort of the, some of the stuff you're getting into as well with pornography is the so-called fan service, um, you know, which oftentimes I think content creators even engage in. Um, and the idea of, you know, hey, yes, we will create potentially pornographic or potentially, you know, um, controversial uh, material involving the properties that they have. But it, it, it does get – pornography, I think, is a great sort of thing to look at in conjunction with a lot of modding because it's one of those places – Not, not and literally, figuratively. Yeah, figuratively. <laughs> um, in conjunction with tarnishment as to what it is, is a large number of properties obviously would not want to be associated with yeah, pornography most anyway. Yeah, not. not prominently. Um, just because of the fact of you know its nature, the fact that it's it definitely has its taboo elements. It's something that's not necessarily well accepted. And you start talking about a lot of things that may end up getting into this. It's something where we have to wonder about why there's interest in potentially, you know, making pornography of this thing like a Disney property. Obviously, Disney is going to be very, very opposed to any of their properties showing up in any kind of pornographic material because their, their properties are targeted at children. Mm -hmm. And this is not something that they want to see and, you know, associated with them in any way, shape or form. Um so we can kind of take that extreme example, but it doesn't take long to start thinking about it as saying, hey, if you're a content creator, do you want it involved in pornography? Um, I think and, most probably don't. And you probably don't. And, you know, even to the extent of it being relatively mild pornography, so to speak, I mean, we're not talking about something which is, you know, the extreme deep end off of here, which, you know, you're going to need a you know secret email account <laughs> in order to access in the you know, depths of the dark web, so to speak. You know, even potentially, you know, arguably legal porn and stuff that's, you know, readily available on the internet, you probably don't want to be associated with as a content creator just because, one, you, you, you want no association of your brand with it. And secondly, because you don't want it diluting your mark. You don't want it tarnishing your mark. You don't want people finding that instead of finding you. Yeah, particularly when with our shortened attention spans where somebody just sees one, you know, r random social media reference to it and, and th that's their impression of, of your mark. Yeah. Um, we should say that these theories, I think both apply only to quote-unquote famous marks. Is that right? Not necessarily. Dilution, I mean, they I can't apply to, to, to other trademarks as to what it is. They, they, a lot of times they're used in conjunction with famous marks. But, yeah. you know, technically, 
technically you can have dilution and tarnishment of other marks too. But going back to copyright, so the, the, the main question is, if you're making something that's wholly original and for use with somebody else's system, that's usually relatively straightforward. As long as you avoid the trademark issues, yep. you're probably not infringing any copyrights. The real key thing here is you're creating work that is essentially wholly original. So yeah. again, if I go through and I make a pawn for use in a game, and the fact that it happens to be usable in Monopoly it's still a pawn. It's still yeah. a sculpture that I made. I mean, I mean a gumdrop is usable as a, mo- as a you know, something you can move in I mean, Monopoly. I'm hold- I happen to be holding a paperclip right now, and why couldn't I use this as my Monopoly piece? Yeah. Like, that, how can that possibly infringe any Monopoly IP? Yeah, it, it and doesn't that's make any the sense. idea, because it's also usable in anything else. I mean, I yeah. can use the pawn in Sorry, for that matter. Yeah, so so that's that's one situation. Now, that's not to say you couldn't make something for use with Monopoly that would infringe IP. Like, I, if I was to go make a Luke Skywalker sculpture, yes. um, obviously... There's, there's an interest in that. Uh, but where it gets more interesting is where you're actually modifying something or, or making what we would call, Kirk said earlier, a derivative work of something. Um, that's a, t- a tougher question because the Copyright Act is clear that der- the right to make derivative works, no matter what you do with them, uh, belongs to the author of the original. Um, and so that, that can make it tricky. Yeah, and, and when we're talking about derivative works, we're basically saying you're taking um, you know, sort of the, the work that's out there, and I think the key thing to keep in mind is that in most cases, you're not modifying the actual thing that you've purchased. So again, it's not like you're taking a Monopoly board, cutting it up, and, and repositioning it as art on the wall. In many respects, that's going to be covered by first sale doctrine. Um, but what you're, you're talking about is I'm going to make something which is clearly a derived from a Monopoly board. Um, that's based upon a Monopoly board, but isn't just a Monopoly board that I've man- the actual physical Monopoly board that I maneuvered. It's the IP, the concept behind the Monopoly board is what I'm talking about. And one of the things that came up in that Chapter House case involving Warhammer is even even if it is a derivative work, is there any copyright in the specific thing you've modified in the first place? Yeah, and that's I think that's the biggest thing you bump into is a lot of times when you're talking about these modifications and mods, they're relatively small pieces. Um, or their components. So when I'm talking about saying, you know, there's clearly a copyright in a sculptural work, what if I only copied the ear of the Scotty dog? You know, I mean, and those kind of things where you're now starting to look a little bit like fair use. And the question is, is there any copyright in that? Is that a set of fair? Now, that's kind of an extreme example. But, but that came up in Chapter House, right? Yeah. There was the door that they did with like door, a pile the, of skulls. And they were like, the, the court said, yeah. there's nothing copyrightable in here. It's all just sons. Yeah, well, in a particular example, it was used as in conjunction with the shoulder pads, where they're making shoulder pads that had standard sergeant chevron markings on them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, well-established markings from the United States military and a bunch of other militaries that are out there. That marking is not copyrightable. There's no question. And definitely the, the company doesn't own the marking. But the question is, do they own the shape of the shoulder pad? You know, is there something about that? Knowing that the shoulder pad is simply one component of a much larger space marine, what, how does this how is this really going to play out? And I think that's a lot of the difficulty in modding. And I think if there's one takeaway maybe from this episode and something that's that's worth thinking about in conjunction with modding, the difficulty in this question is it's very case-by-case specific. Yeah, these are all very, very fact-specific, copyright issues especially. Yeah, and, and when we're talking about this being case-by-case specific, you can look at it and say, hey, I modified this small component of this thing and it's not copyright infringement and a court said so you may look at it and say you know person B did exactly the same thing to a different underlying copyright and the court says it is infringement that's not because of the fact that the courts are being inconsistent it's because of the fact that they're very very fact specific as to what happened and by fact specific it's what is the copyright ability what's the material underlying what is the copyright related to and then even what's the behavior of the parties yeah well let's let's talk about what content creators original creators whose things are being modified uh, are are doing to work around all of this we see lawsuits in some cases I, I would say 
say that's probably falling out of favor because your typical modder doesn't really have. I mean, I, I maybe you want an injunction to make them stop, but you're not going to get a lot of money back. Yeah, and that's. I mean, the one time in the last time these things, you really want to target your fans. Um, I think is always a question, and definitely there are you know content creators out there that have said we're completely intolerant of modding. Yeah, and you know that's a fine position. They're entitled to take yeah, that position. That. I think there's no question that copyright law grants that. Those are the ones who I think you're going to see in the lawsuits more often. You're going to see in sort of much more of the aggressive stands. But a lot of companies have decided not to take that stand. And when you're yep. not going to take that stand, they may not be as litigious as they would otherwise. Well, I think a lot of them to control the trademark concerns and to just have at least some control over the modding community basically establish what I call a path to legitimacy, yep. a way that you can be officially permitted to use the trademarks, to use the materials, and to prepare things. And that establishes a relationship with whoever owns the original content and gives them at least some control over what you can do with it. Yep. And I think it's a good thing to keep in mind. What we're talking about is sort of these past legitimacy is effectively a contract. Yeah. And it's important to keep in mind that in sort of sen- in legal sense, the contract law kind of can overwrite everything. You, yep. can, you can do something by contract law, which allows you to essentially write your way out of any other law. We talked about this a little bit in our you know, end of the world episode and the, and the eclipse and stuff like that of you know, what exactly does the contract say. This is another place where it's really worth looking at as a content creator, what do you want a contract to say as somebody who is interested in potentially modding what does the contract say? A lot of companies go through and say, hey, look, here's where we're going to place the line in the sand. If you do A, B, and C, it's fine. If you do D and E, it's not. Um, and there's a real value to that from sort of everybody's point of view and the fact that it makes clear what it is. And, and the reality of it is in most of those cases, they're going to make the contract – they're going to reduce the copyright coverage. Well, we have run way long, much to my surprise. I thought we'd have about 20 minutes of material here, and we've gone way over. So we're going we're gonna to wrap it up. Uh, we could do much more on this. We probably will. It's a fantastic topic. Next time, we're going to talk about fan art in IP. Uh, this question comes to us from Mike S., so thank you, Mike. If you have a question, you can ask us on on Twitter at LGGPod. You can email us at LGGPodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, If you like what you hear, give us a review. We appreciate it. It helps other people find us. Uh, That's all for today. The music is playing, so please enjoy a few more seconds of the musical stylings of the one and only LGG Cantina band, Lorem Ipsum and the Scriveners. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri.